This has been a, uh, a brief journey through the book of Leviticus. Uh, someone commented to me recently that it's been a real blessing for them as they've read through this book of Leviticus over the last uh, week or so. And uh, if you haven't done that yet, then I encourage you to, to do that. Uh, if you remember right back to when we uh, first started this book, we saw how Leviticus was structured and how reading through the first half of Leviticus is equivalent to going into the tabernacle, into the centre. Uh, and uh, so we saw that uh, two weeks, was it two weeks ago? Uh, the message was about the priests um, and so as you come into the Lord's presence you need to come through a mediator into his holy presence. Last week we looked at the Day of Atonement right in the centre of the book uh, that showed us that uh, that atonement that God himself provides is the guarantee that he would continue to dwell amongst his people. And then this passage uh, in the second half of the book uh, is like coming out of the tabernacle, out into life again, knowing that uh, you have access to God, knowing that your sins have been forgiven and so you can step out into a a life that reflects that. And uh, it was a long chapter for us to read through but I, I wanted us to hear the whole chapter just to show how this this principle uh, filtered right through every aspect of life. They were to think about how do I manage my real estate? How do I handle my money? How do I work out my relationship with hired workers? How do I deal with the foreigners and the sojourners amongst us? Uh, Knowing that they were God's people and God dwelt among them was to impact every part of their lives, not just their personal lives of holiness but their whole corporate life as a society was to be infused with these principles. And the principle that's primary here in this chapter is the principle of the Sabbath. Let's remember a bit about what the Sabbath was all about. It's come up a few times as as we've worked our way through these first books and the Sabbath is something that comes up all the way through the scriptures. The Sabbath was central to the life of Israel. The Sabbath gave them their seven day week, something that's now observed around the whole world. That's an interesting number to use for a weekly cycle. Uh, In ancient cultures, uh, their cycles of weeks and months and years were kind of determined by the world around them. Uh, The moon told them how many months there were in a year. Uh, But seven days a week doesn't kind of fit with any kind of natural rhythm or pattern. The only reason they observed the seventh day as a Sabbath was because God had commanded it but also God had modelled it by creating the world in six steps and then he himself observed the Sabbath when he finished his work and he enjoyed his completed creation 
Now other cultures began to adopt this seven day week, not out of reverence for the Lord necessarily, but because it was a proven system that actually worked. It's almost as if the Sabbath was designed for humanity. Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was so important that breaking it was punishable by death. See, because of his great love for his people, he so strongly commanded something that would be so good for them. We need to be aware that none of the Sabbath instructions require specific acts of religious worship for the Israelites. The thing that defined the Sabbath as a holy day was rest. It was in resting that people honoured the Lord. Sabbath is a way of expressing your trust in God as the faithful creator. It's a way of acknowledging that your life does not depend upon your continual work. You don't make yourself, you don't sustain yourself. And all that you do gain by your hard work, even that is still a gift from God. So to stop work on the Sabbath is to acknowledge that the world is dependent upon him, not on you. The sun will rise and set regardless of how hard we work. If you don't have any sense of Sabbath rhythm built into your life, then it's time to review your priorities and actually make it happen, both for your sake but also to honour God. God loves it when we rest. He's glorified when we, his creatures, his image bearers, live in such a way that we thrive both in body and in mind. Many people in the world are very good at resting. So how much more should we as God's people reflect that principle? Now while there wasn't official worship on the Sabbath, it's important to note what actually was included. This is in uh, Leviticus 23. For six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. Convocation there sounds like a very official sounding kind of meeting. But the point being made here is the Sabbath is a time for gathering together, for assembling, for being with one another. It comes from the same word that's translated into the New Testament with the word ecclesia, the word for church. The Sabbath was to be a time for renewing and maintaining relationships. It was about ensuring that people weren't so focused on getting their work done 
that they never had time to spend with their family or their community. So Sabbath didn't mean just sitting down all day and doing nothing. It meant being busy in fostering relationships. And note that the location of these Sabbath convocations was in all your dwelling places. The implication here is the Lord didn't require the people to come to his tent. He would be with them in their tents because he's the God dwelling amongst them. So this weekly Sabbath rhythm is then reflected in the rhythm of Sabbath years. Now the command about the Sabbath years was already given back in Exodus chapter 13. For six years you shall sow your land and gather it in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. See how this isn't merely about land care, although any farmer will testify that allowing their paddocks periodically to lie fallow, to have them rest from being cropped for a season is actually good for the soil and it will actually yield better fruits in the future. God is concerned about the care of his creation. Respecting the land is actually important to him. But more important for the Israelites was respecting this specific land they were in that had been promised to Abraham, given to them to be the place where he would dwell with them. The promised land was to be both a reminder of Eden when he walked with humanity in the garden that he had planted and a foreshadowing of the new creation when the whole world will be a garden filled with his glory. Eden was a place of rest, of Sabbath. It was an environment that reflected the Sabbath rest of God and his people living in it. And as soon as sin entered the world through Adam, the ground was cursed. It lost its fruitfulness and it required hard work in order to live and eat. The state of the ground then became a reflection of the state of humanity. Sin and injustice brought a curse But when humanity is restored, there will be a renewal of creation. The curse will be lifted from the ground and it will be full of fruitfulness. That's the link that's made here with this Sabbath year. It's to be a time of justice and mercy and provision for the poor and even for the beasts of the field, for the wild animals. Sabbath was a reminder of Eden, a reminder of the time when 
people could live off the God-given fruitfulness of the land. Today in modern day Israel, when devout Jews observe this year, uh, they call it Shemitah, uh, and it's currently Shemitah in Israel. It started in September last year and will continue to September this year. A devout Jew in this year opens up the gates on their farms and they hang a sign that says, Rendered Onerless so that anyone can just come in and freely take whatever grows there. Devout Jews who are living outside of Israel, they can buy a four-foot square plot of land on a farm so that they too can observe Shemitah. Other Israeli farmers get around this uh, it's, it's not, a, it's not a, a law in Israel to observe Shemitah, but devout Jews still observe it. Some of them get around it by growing their crops hydroponically so that their crops aren't in the land and so they're exempt from this. Or they can technically sell their land to a non-Jew for 12 months so that the farming can continue. It's, We're very clever, aren't we, at uh, getting around God's commands and making it look like we're obeying when we're really uh, disregarding his word. So the Sabbath year is more about the people than the land and this yearly cycle of every seven years then culminates in the year of Jubilee after seven sevens. In this year, all debts are cancelled. All land is returned to its original owner and all slaves are freed. They are to proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. Remember that phrase because we'll see it come up in a little while. So the framework for life in the promised land is all structured around this Sabbath principle. It would provide a system of justice in which as a person planned their week, they would bear in mind the Sabbath. As they planned their years ahead, they would bear in mind the Sabbath year. As they planned their life, they would bear in mind the Jubilee year. They would do everything in light of the liberty and the rest that the Lord wanted his people to know. And that's reflected in the second part of this chapter, in all of the instructions about land ownership and work arrangements and systems designed to provide for the poor. It wasn't just on the Sabbath years and the Jubilee years that they were to care for one another. Now, I'm probably right in assuming that as you heard this reading, the part that probably stood out to you, maybe in a negative way, was the mention of slaves in verses 44 to 46. When we see that word, we immediately recoil because 
of what we know of modern day slavery in which people are taken against their will, they're robbed of their rights and they're forced into demeaning labour with no pay. Now we need to take note of the fact that that kind of practice was roundly forbidden in the law. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So slavery as we think of it, the slave trade of the uh, 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries was punishable by death in Israel. This isn't the kind of slavery that this passage is speaking of, but rather it's the scenario that's mentioned there in verse 39. If someone becomes poor, either through circumstances beyond their control or because they incurred a large debt, they could sell themselves to another person in a form of voluntary contractual labour to pay off the debt, to make sure that they were provided for and their family was provided for. And the deal worked in both directions. It was a contractual agreement. Not only did it provide someone with workers, but it was also a form of social security for the poor. Not only were they obligated to work for their master for the set amount of time, but their master was obligated to pay them for that amount of time. Really, it was an ancient form of what today we'd call a work contract. Now, obviously, the system, like any good system, was open to being abused by unscrupulous people. So that this chapter shows us how it's very strictly regulated. So Israelites weren't permitted to treat fellow Israelites in this way. They weren't allowed to bind them to a lengthy contract. Instead, they were to treat them as, again in modern terms, we might say casual employees who would be taken on for a time between a day or a year and then that, that would be renewed. And then regardless of the time that they worked, the Sabbath year and the Jubilee year would release them from their debt, no matter how much they still owed. And see the reason why these poor Israelites are to be given this special treatment? I think I put this verse in the wrong place. No, there it is. For they are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. See, it's not that these people were free It was that they belonged to another master. They belonged to the Lord. They'd been released from the cruel, oppressive slavery of their Egyptian masters, not to become autonomous or independent, but to come into the service of their new master, the Lord. See, serving him, unlike their servitude in Egypt, gives joy and peace. To be a slave to the Lord is actually true freedom. So the way in which the Israelites were to deal with one another was to reflect this. A slavery that's really freedom. A slavery where you're my worker but 
I'll treat you as a member of the family. Now this principle is applied to us in the New Testament. The Israelites were rescued from Egyptian slavery to serve the Lord and so we too, we have been set free from slavery to sin. Not to do as we please, but to serve the Lord. Although saying do as we please, it's an odd term to use because when we know the grace of God, it will be our desire to serve him because our heart will be changed. So it will become our pleasure to obey him. So in that sense, as Christians, we must continue to do as we please, but we must make sure that our affections are truly towards him and not towards ourselves. So it will be our pleasure to do his will. See how this application is fleshed out in Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. For what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if we serve sin, we will receive the wages that we deserve, death. But see how the alternative isn't to serve God and receive in return the wages of life. Eternal life is a free gift of God, given, it's not earned. Our service is in light of this free gift, which has already been credited to our account before we even lifted a finger. Recently I did a gardening job for a man and when I arrived, the first thing he did was he gave me an envelope with the money that he would owe me for the work that I hadn't even started yet. And so as I worked in his garden, I worked in light of the fact that the money was there in my pocket already. Now it's not a perfect example because it still was payment for work I was doing, but As we serve God, it's not in order to earn the payment, it's in light of the free gift that he's already given us. Now, things were a little different though for non-Israelites. They could be taken on as slaves and their contracts weren't interrupted or cancelled by the year of Jubilee. 
But remember, they weren't chattel slaves. They weren't uh, taken against their will. They were still in this arrangement by choice. Even when their choice meant travelling from their other country to Israel from another nation, they were still protected under the laws that required... Um, is that the... There, there's the law that requires kindness to foreigners. You shall not oppress a sojourner. Do you know the heart of a sojourner? For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. People of other nations, when faced with this need to enter into this kind of arrangement, they could travel to Israel knowing that there, unlike in their own nation, they would be treated kindly and fairly. Foreign slaves were not exempt from the weekly Sabbath rest. And they knew that there was always an ongoing open invitation for any foreigner to be circumcised and to come into the fold of Israel. That's a recurring theme throughout the Old Testament of foreigners coming in and being included. Jesus' own family tree contains at least three foreigners that we know of who should have, under the strict rules of the law, been excluded, but by grace they were brought into the family. And this was the point of the difference between Israelites and foreigners when it came to this work arrangement. It wasn't a way to exclude foreigners, but a way to showcase the goodness of what it means to be one of the Lord's people and to extend that invitation that says if you come to the Lord for mercy and grace, you will never be turned away. You know, in the early church, the first Gentiles who became Christians weren't pagans. They were known as God-fearers. These were Gentiles who believed in and worshipped the Lord and would come along to the synagogue. One ancient synagogue that was unearthed um, a few decades ago has a list of its founding members. There are 69 Jews and 54 God-fearing Greeks. These God-fearers, they hadn't come in by the Jews holding evangelistic events. They simply witnessed the attractiveness of the Jews' faith. They saw the beauty and the goodness of God's law. And so these God-fearing Gentiles heard the gospel not when the apostles were out in the marketplace but when the apostles visited the synagogues in the towns that they came to. It was only later that the gospel also went out to the marketplaces and reached Gentiles who had no connection with the synagogues. Now I hope you can see the obvious lesson for us as the church today. 
We must have doors, not just our physical doors, but the doors of our hearts wide open for all who may choose to come along and check out the faith. And at the same time, very clear definitions of what it means to be a true believer in Jesus. So there are certain things in the church that a non-believer doesn't participate in. The sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, positions of ministry and leadership. And those are some of the things that serve to kind of draw that distinction. Yet they don't exclude a non-believer from sharing in the benefits of life in the community. And their inclusion in the community is that ongoing invitation to step further in and to receive that grace of God. You may be aware that there are a number of people connected with our church here whom you may never see here on a Sunday morning or rarely see, but you may encounter them in other times, in other places. There's a a few who come along once a month to share lunch with us, but they're not quite at the point where they're ready to come in and be part of our worship service. Why do they keep coming? It's because of the welcome and hospitality shown to them by God's people. And so we should all be making the effort to get to know them and to be praying for the Father to draw them to Jesus. In a few weeks, on Easter Sunday morning, we'll have the privilege of witnessing the baptism of someone who's come to faith in Jesus through exactly that happening through people whose lives have adorned the gospel that they've proclaimed. If you haven't been baptised yet and you are a believer in Jesus, then speak to myself or Chin or Su Kyong and uh, we'll happily baptise you on Easter Sunday. Now, there's no record of Israel ever observing the Sabbath years or the Jubilee year over the whole period of time from when they entered the land to when they were taken out into the exile. Just one chapter after this chapter in 26, the Lord says, but if in spite of this you will not listen to me but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins and I myself will devastate the land and so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it and I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheath the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation and your city shall be a waste then the land shall enjoy its sabbaths as long as it lies desolate while you are in your enemy's land then the land shall rest and enjoy its sabbaths As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest. The rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. So the people lived in the land until because of their idolatry, because of their neglect of justice for the poor and oppressed, they were taken into exile for 70 years. One year for every time that they did not observe the Sabbath year. 
and with it the Jubilee year. 490 years between entering the land taken into exile, 70 times 7. See, that was supposed to be that showcase of what it's like to be a people living under God's blessing as they walked in joyful obedience to his word. Instead, they became a showcase of what it looks like to be a people living under God's wrath because of disobedience. But that was all, it was all part of the Father's plan. Their failure to observe the Sabbath year and the Jubilee years wasn't a surprise to him, which is why this chapter is here in Leviticus long before they actually entered the land. When Jesus visited the synagogue in Nazareth at the start of his ministry, the scripture reading for that day was from the scroll of Isaiah and Jesus deliberately found the place in Isaiah that speaks of Jubilee. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty Proclaim liberty, remember Leviticus 25 verse 10, to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marvelled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth and they said, is this not Joseph's son? Jesus announces the Jubilee to which all of the Sabbath years and all of the Jubilee years pointed. This is the year of the Lord's favour a time of good news to the poor, of liberty to captives, sight for the blind, freedom for the oppressed. And this is what Jesus' ministry was all about. Think of his miracles, healing the sick, the blind, the deaf and the lame, delivering from evil spirits, turning water into wine, multiplying bread and fish. They were all signs of the favour of the Lord that had arrived in him. They pointed forward to the day when all of these things would come to pass in the new creation, but they also pointed to the spiritual liberty that he came to accomplish, in which those who are poor in spirit will rejoice. Those who are slaves to sin and death will be freed. Those who are in spiritual darkness and blindness will see the light of God's glory dawning on them. And those who are under the accusing power of the devil will be released into the glorious freedom of the children of God. So the true year of Jubilee began with the coming of Jesus. Did you notice in Leviticus 25 that the year of Jubilee began on the Day of Atonement? Jesus' cross is the day of atonement. That's when the trumpet is sounded, that all are called to come to him and to receive the freedom, the liberty that he offers. 
Now we can try to be the welcoming, inclusive community that I described earlier, but we'll never be so truly unless we have the message of Christ crucified, the Day of Atonement at the centre, unless we ourselves are living in this jubilee, unless we know not only the truth of the Gospel with our heads and hearts, but also with our hands and our feet. So just as the Day of Atonement on the seventh Sabbath flowed into the year of Jubilee, so too must the power of the risen, crucified and the crucified risen and reigning Jesus flow into the life of our church. Recently, uh, Daryl and I were at a party and we were speaking to a man who proclaimed himself proudly as an atheist. He spoke of his bad experiences as a child of a devout parent who said put him off religion for life. When it was suggested to him that maybe trying to go along to a church and he might actually experience a loving and caring community, his response was I very much doubt that. Now, I don't know whether his response to his experiences was valid or not, whether maybe he was just using his a few bad experiences in life as an excuse to dismiss God and to live his own life. Possibly he was. And no one will be able to stand before God and blame another person's hypocrisy for their ignorance or rejection of God. But we must always be examining ourselves in light of statements like that. If that man turned up at our church, will he hear the good news of the atoning work of Christ? And will he witness and experience among us the joy and the liberty of the Jubilee? So let's be praying that we will know the fullness of the presence of Christ among us by the power of the Spirit so that we could answer yes, that we're always ready, always ready to hold forth the word of the gospel to all and to adorn the gospel with lives that are free to go and serve and love and give.